The views and content expressed on the following program are provided solely for informational and entertainment purposes. They do not constitute legal advice. A podcast is not a substitute for retaining a competent, licensed attorney to advise you on your specific legal situation. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the show. You are listening to the Break the Business Podcast. I'm Ryan Carella, and it is a pleasure to have you here this week. I'm excited for this week's show. Our guest this week is a dear friend of mine. Love him. He, we go back forever, and he is a true friend of the indie artist. He is an attorney with the Intellectual Property Practice Group at Parker, Poe, Adams, and Bernstein in Raleigh, North Carolina. He is also an entertainment lawyer who advises a wide range of performers on their trademark, contract, and related issues, and he also knows knows more about guitars and Sherlock Holmes than you ever will. You can find out more about his work by visiting www.parkerpo.com and you can follow him on Twitter at Josh Morales ESQ. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome my buddy Josh Morales to the Break the Business podcast. How you doing, man? Hey, Ryan. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Thank you for taking the time. This is this is so exciting. I've been wanting to talk to you on this podcast forever because I feel like we're just going to react uh, I should say reenact uh, the conversations that you and I just have all the time about the music business because we're really of the same mind when it comes to empowering indie artists. And, you know, we're just so copacetic on this. No, right. I mean, I, I think that's exactly right. You know, as you mentioned, I mean, you and I go back a long way. We've been, you know, in the entertainment biz for a while, just between the two of us. And uh, I would say, you know, one of the most pleasurable parts of my entertainment practice for sure is is referring, you know, clients and matters back and forth with you and and, and joining up when we've had the opportunity. And so to get to uh, to talk about these issues, I think, you know, particularly with your listeners and, you know, for the benefit of indie artists is a is a treat for me. And I just uh, I appreciate the opportunity, of course. Cool. Well, like most entertainment lawyers, you do have some legal area focuses where you really like to serve your clients well. And a big part of your legal practice in the entertainment space centers around trademarks, registering them, managing them. Many of our listeners, because they're early career indie artists, they, they haven't done a lot in the trademark space yet. They probably may not even know what a trademark is. So tell the listeners a bit about what are some things that they should be thinking about when they think about trademarks for their music career. Well, I feel that um, indie artists, you know, in particular, when they think about and they and they they worry about and they become concerned about and they manage intellectual property issues in their career, that's usually coming up in in two spots, right? The first, you know, particularly in the music space, but also in film and TV, is always copyright. You know, what are my works of authorship, my musical compositions, my sound recordings? When do they come into being? How do I protect them? How easy is it to register them? And and how do I license them? How do I publish them? How do I how do I get them out there in the world working for me? And that's sort of an automatic place to go. But another place where where managers in particular, you know, will push their clients is, you know, in addition to developing your content, you need to develop a brand. Right. And so branding is something that indie artists have a lot of facility with and are and are constantly worrying about. And and in some of the tools that, you know, that you talk about on the show that you talk about in your book, you know, branding comes very naturally. Right. And so the idea is for, for indie artists to take that branding concept and, and start to think about it, you know, with their representatives, but also in their own right in a little bit more of a legal way. Right. And that's where trademark comes in, because, you know, Brand is a is a loose description for things that indicate your the source of your goods and services, right? And that's what a trademark is, right? It's a you know, 
in the simplest terms, legally, it is a source indicator for a good or a service. And so when you're developing a brand and you consider, you know, potential trademarks for, you know, your stage name in particular, uh, or just as a common example, or, you know, particularly in the world we operate now where, you know, a lot of indie artists are going the route of, of releasing, you know, a series of EPs or a series of singles instead of, you know, your, um, your long play album, which is more traditional, you know, that trademark, if you use it, will help you, you know, identify a series of EPs or a series of singles as a body of work that's associated with you. And so that's just sort of a long winded way of, of, uh, of explaining that, you know, trademark has become way more common in the indie artist's arsenal than than it might have been originally or that it might have been originally thought of. So that's interesting. You, what you're kind of presenting to us is the fact that the indie, indie music industry has gotten to a place now where artists are submitting, you know, fewer, fewer songs and submitting them more frequently. So instead of the 12-track album, you might see, you know, two or three EPs or 12 singles throughout the year— and because artists are releasing fewer works more frequently, protecting the brand is more important? Absolutely. Um, just because, you know, again, I'll go back to, to your book, right, because it's so great. It talks about how easy it is now without, you know, the support of a record label or even a publisher or even some sort of sophisticated management enterprise. You know, the tools are out there for you as an indie artist to not only get your content together, but bring it to the masses, right? And really focus on the quantity and the quality really of your interactions with your with your fan base and to make them more frequent. And so quite naturally as a result of that, and this is great, right? We have a marketplace where there is a lot of noise to cut through and a lot of effort that is needed to get through that noise and really get yourself in front of your fans as frequently as you possibly can and with as much content that is as high quality as you could possibly get it. And so if you use, you know, that trademark, that logo, that color scheme, that stage name, that, um, brand associated with a series of, of works that you might put out in a given year and your fans keep you front of mind, focused right where you need to be, right where your image is clear to them constantly, then it'll be that much easier for you to cut through that noise and, and get yourself out there in a way that's really going to get your product moving. Well, that's interesting that you brought up record labels and, you know, kind of the old world of the industry. And that sort of drives me to want to talk about um, another real strong area of expertise for you when it comes to entertainment law, which is just on the contract side and being across the table from some of these big content companies. Uh, I, I want to walk with you through a trend that I've really found interesting with respect to contracts with artists, and that's this notion of exclusivity. In the old days, and you know, not even that long ago for you and me, because we're still fairly young attorneys, but I feel like when we, you and I were reviewing contracts, even just a, a few years ago, exclusivity was much more common, especially in things like record deals and publishing deals, in the sense that the labels and publishers that want to work with artists, they wouldn't be willing to work with them unless they're willing to work with them and only them. So... I mean, you're seeing this change in today's music industry, right? Like when you're representing an artist in a negotiation, what sort of things do you talk to that artist about when it comes to exclusivity? Oh, I think that's exactly right. I think there's been a watershed change, particularly given how easy it is to to get yourself out there now, you know, of your own accord, of your own volition, with your own resources. You know, there's a little bit of a, of a leverage dynamic that's a little different. 
Um, you know, I mean, you and I have done work both on the artist side and the label side and the publisher side. And so we've seen this dynamic, you know, work in a few different directions. But I think that, you know, to your point, as exclusivity becomes less common, um, the indie artist is in a position probably now more than ever to slice and dice their career and their content every which way. You know, it used to be that, you know, you got that call from that record label or that publisher or that talent agent. And that was your big break. And you had to put all your eggs in their basket. And they went out there and they helped you. Um, they helped you market yourself in a way that you independently didn't used to be able to do. And so as a result, you know, your very first record deal or your very first publishing deal was usually a bad deal, right? <laughs> because you were willing to give, you were willing to give up almost anything to get your career off the ground. Um, but now, you know, that you're responsible for your own Twitter following and your own Instagram following and your own SoundCloud and um, your ability to, to get content out, you know, you yourself, you know, through this podcast, right? The ability to get yourself out there in ways that you couldn't before. Um, you have a little bit more leverage in the marketplace. The example that I love to think about is, uh, is Ed Sheeran. Ed Sheeran, um, you know, t you know is, is obviously a large, you know, a large label artist uh, with a large, you know, publishing stable, Um Fantastic songwriter, terrific performer, but he preaches even in this generation that content is king and that the only reason he was able to get a record deal that put him exactly where he needed to be as early as he needed to be there is that he showed up with a large amount of content and a significant following in his own right. And so when he signed over that exclusive, you know, that exclusive right to be you know, his record label and to, you know, own a stake in his sound recordings and to really partner in the development of his career, he knew exactly what he was doing. And so, you know, when I preach to an indie artist now, you know, you want to be careful, you know, let's say that your goal is, you know, to get a synchronization deal for a song that you've written that you think is tailor-made for some kind of movie or television show or dramatic sequence. And you get that call from that publisher that you know constantly gets mined by television and movie studios. And they want the exclusive rights to your entire catalog for every song you've written so far and every song that you're going to write during the term of that publishing contract. You know, you and I immediately preach caution, right? Be careful. Stop. Slow down. <laughs> you don't want to grant that sort of exclusivity to one party. Because you don't know if you're going to get some phone call or some letter or email two weeks down the line from someone else, and that's going to be your big break, and you've signed over the exclusive rights to your publishing. Now, I know you know this, Ryan. The counter argument that you're always going to get from the artist and your client is, well, what if this is the break? And by you telling me to slow down and stop and consider this, I'm going to miss this opportunity and let it fly by. And that's the point where I would strongly encourage artists to seek counsel, right? Talk to your attorney, talk to your manager, talk to the folks that you're working with and get your entire, your entire uh, support system, like the one you're always talking about, Ryan, get them around you, get them in the room and start talking about creative ways to negotiate that publishing deal and say, look, you know, completely understand that you're interested in this catalog of songs. I want to partner with you publisher on the ones you think are the strongest. And I'm happy to give you the exclusive rights to those but I'm writing lots of different songs for lots of different purposes. And I'm not ready to sign over my entire catalog when in reality, you know, this is only an idea I have for, you know, 
this specific series or this specific EP, and I might have other ideas in the future for which I would be happy to sign a different deal with you. But now it's time to get creative about this conversation and and get a result together that we think makes sense. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the dangers of exclusivity. I've even come across some scenarios in, in my practice in which I have seen the dangers of getting too broad with non-exclusivity such that it takes away an opportunity for you to get a really good exclusivity deal with somebody down the road. I had a a situation where there was an artist who had just gotten this huge deal of a lifetime to get their song placed in some TV commercial where they were going to get a huge upfront um and it was going to get played, you know, national so you you're looking at some serious performance royalties. And then the whole deal fell apart because the sync agent came back and said, we found your song in some, you know, little jingle punks kind of database because you basically gave this other company just non-exclusive rights to everything that you have in there. And so we were able to get your song right out of that catalog for next to nothing because you put it in that catalog. And even if it wasn't exclusive, because you gave somebody else too broad of non-exclusive rights you're now going to miss out on this really good exclusivity deal later. That is absolutely a risk that you face in the marketplace. And, you know, the best advice that I could give, you know, to prevent that sort of situation is to understand and know your value. Um, You know, as an artist, as a songwriter, it's so easy to fall into this trap where, you know, you're willing to take the deals that call you and and the ones that come looking for you and the ones that your friends take and, and anything that you could possibly do to get yourself in front of as many eyes and as many ears as you possibly can. But, you know, if you increase the supply of your work by that much, um, depending on what the demand is and, and the particular aim that you have for that particular body of work, you might end up reducing the price dramatically, which is not something that you want. You were talking earlier about, you know, getting an attorney. And I, I want to ask you something that I often like to ask the entertainment attorneys on this show that I bring on because the answers I always get are really intriguing. And this is something that artists ask me all the time, which is when is the time right to bring in the entertainment attorney? You know, how how big does the problem have to get where I go? I need to talk to a lawyer. And obviously the easier answer, easiest answer to that question is as early as possible. But how do our artists balance that with the reality that we cost money <laughs> and, no. you know, like, yeah. I mean, ideally so, we'd so, like to get the attorney there on day one, but like, how do you balance those two things? No, I, th- I think that that's, that's an important consideration. And, you know, I mean, I, uh, you know, in addition to the entertainment background that, that you and I share, you know, I also have a, I also have a corporate background. And so, you know, one of the easiest examples that I can think of is, you know, if I, you know, had a really great idea, actually, I was recently in a, I was recently in Charleston, South Carolina, and I, I ran into a really cool um, startup uh, that's basically revolutionizing the ice cream sandwich and just kind of reinventing it. And I thought it was one of the coolest things I had ever seen. And I, I actually had, I had a sandwich and then I sat in the shop just talking to the shop owner who's an entrepreneur and has a few different shops up and down the East coast. And we just talked for about 35 minutes about ice cream sandwiches and where this all came from because I'm a giant nerd. But, uh, you know, what I'm always telling, you know, folks like that who are in that space is, you know, you might take your ice cream sandwich shop and it might become really big and it might become really successful and you might attract, you know, a group of investors or maybe even a buyer, um, who's already operating in the space as strategic. And you might want to enlist the help of bankers and lawyers to help sell your business. Well, 
you know, if you're an ice cream sandwich shop in Charleston, South Carolina, and you have, you know, four or five locations up and down the East Coast, you know, paying the massive commissions of, you know, Merrill Lynch as an investment bank may not be a fantastic idea for you. Um, they may not be equipped and set up to sell a business of your size. They may not have the contacts that you need with the potential buyers who would be interested in a business uh, of your kind. And, you know, despite their reputation in the marketplace for being the best in the business in terms of investment banking, it may not be a great choice for you. And so is the same for um, indie artists who are considering hiring counsel. You know, you want somebody, you know, you want somebody nimble, you want somebody agile, and you want somebody who's going to have the cost sensitivity and flexibility to grow a relationship with you. And so, you know, Ryan, you and I can identify, you know, th those of our friends in the marketplace who are in a position to practice law in this particular way. They work with lots of indie artists. They're really capable and they have lots of fun doing it. Um, but these are the guys that are coming up with, you know, the flat fee arrangements, um, the ladies who are going to walk in and, uh, you know, have the experience to be able to not only keep their fees reasonable and, and work flat when they can and, and, and work with blended rates when they can, but who also have been out there pounding the pavement, talking to exactly the kinds of people who are handing out the opportunities that indie artists like you are really going to be interested in. And so, you know, finding the right fit is not only, it not only makes sense in terms of fees, but makes sense in terms of, uh, in terms of experience and in terms of access to opportunities. And then, you know, as you rise and you get larger and your problems become more complicated and all now all of a sudden, you know, you're not just writing songs and making videos and getting synchronization deals, but, you know, you might have a merchandising operation or, you know, you might be in the middle of, you know, a distribution deal where your music and your merch is now going to go across the world. Then you might think of, you know, growing your, your representatives into those who have particular niche experience doing the kinds of deals that you're doing. And that's obviously going to get a little bit more expensive and you might be working with a different kind of lawyer and a different kind of law firm. Um, that's a complicated answer. I also want to offer the indie artists out there a simple answer and that's the time to get a lawyer involved is before you sign anything that would sign over or transfer over significant or limiting rights to your content. That's when you really want to start thinking about making sure that you understand all of the ins and outs of all the words on the page and make the right choice for you. That's very well put. And I do appreciate your insight of sort of there's a lawyer for every stage of your career as an artist. You know, if you're really just getting started and you just don't have the funds there, there are fantastic pro bono organizations like the Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts that can, you know, bridge the gap until you get funds together. Then you can work your way up to kind of, you know, generalist entertainment, you know, solo practitioners, small practices, boutique practices that can, you know, work out some creative fee arrangements for you. And then when you get to these really complicated operations, like, you know, a lot of the top shelf indie artists have, then you need a, a certain kind of law firm that's really able to handle the load. That's a really good way of putting it, Josh. Um, so I would be remiss if I didn't take advantage of another area of expertise for us having you here, uh, we, we love talking pop culture around here whenever we can. And you are unusually knowledgeable on all things Sherlock Holmes. I'd go as far to say you are a legitimate Sherlock Holmes scholar. And whenever any new Sherlock Holmes thing comes out, whether it's that new CBS series 
or with Johnny Lee Miller and Lucy Liu, or it was the Jude Law, Robert Downey Jr., Sherlock Holmes, I always give you a call and say, should I go see this? What do you think? And now we have another situation like this again, because there is a Will Ferrell, John C. Riley Sherlock Holmes movie, and it has been panned by the critics. I think it has an 8% on Rotten Tomatoes right now, but I have known you sometimes to kind of go off the board and zig when others are zagging. So let me ask the Sherlock Holmes scholar, have you seen the Holmes and Watson movie, and what did you think? All right, so first of all, I had a feeling that you might do this you know, on the, on the show <laughs> rather than just give me the usual phone call that you would. Um, and I want you to know, you know, I'm going to give you what I would usually give you, which is a no holds barred assessment. You're, you're going to know, you know, honestly what I think about this. And now all of your listeners are going to know as well. So I'm not going to I'm not going to sugarcoat this for you just because, you know, we're, we're in front of the masses here. <laughs> right on. Well, we all so. would benefit from your expertise on this. <laughs> so I have seen the movie. Um, and uh, I, I guess, you know, I always get you know, a little nervous, you know, whenever I, I get nervous and excited, you know, excited because there's new content that, that I'm interested in. That's going to be a new treatment of, of these, of these characters and of these stories that, that really truly are timeless for me. I think that, you know, probably maybe 13 out of the 15 uh, preceding years, you know, I've read all 56 short stories and all four novels kind of over Christmas. It's a little bit of a tradition for me. Um, and so whenever, whenever there's new content like this, I always like to think about it in, in two ways. You know, first I want to keep an open mind and I want to know, you know, in, in my heart of hearts, you know, do I think this is a good movie? Do I think this is a good television show, you know, sort of in and of itself, which is what I think the, the critics have been, have been talking about lately with, with Holmes and Watson and Will Ferrell and John C. Riley in particular. Um, but then I also want to ask myself the question after that, you know, do I think that this is a good Sherlock Holmes treatment? <laughs> Okay. A good piece of Sherlock Holmes content, you know, would I consider this, you know, in a very nerdy way, canonical, you know, would I put it up there, you know, next to my, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle books and, and say, you know, I, I'm going to think about this Blu-ray the same way. And, you know, a lot of a lot of my fellow Holmesians out there have an extraordinarily high bar for that, right? You know, and, and for some of them, it's a legal thing, right? Is this is this something that was either in the public domain from a copyright perspective, or something that the Conan Doyle estate licensed, or you know, is it just a straight remake of an original, you know, home story, one of the original fifty six or, or fifty six short stories or four novels? You know, for me, I really love the reinventions. Um, Oh really? So you're you not know, like you're not like a real devotee. Like if it's oh if it's not if it's not just like the Arthur Conan Doyle story, story I hate it. Oh no 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 not no, nothing like that. I mean you know I I think I'd probably might have to be British to be that highbrow about it. <laughs> um, you know no, no, nothing against the Brits. I mean they obviously literally wrote the book on this. But uh, I, I think you know it, to your point about uh, Robert Downey Jr. And, and Jude Law, you know seeing. A Victorian era, you know, home style mystery where, you know, your beloved characters are reinvented as as action heroes, but they remain intellectuals and they and they and they remain, you know, with those character qualities and traits and themes that we all knew and love from the books. I thought that that was incredibly interesting and a lot of fun. Um, I'm a big fan, you know, as, as so many people are of the of the Benedict Cumberbatch uh, television show or, or miniseries Sherlock, um, where, you know, they take 
again, a home style series of mysteries with characters with the familiar traits. And then they just park them in the, the 21st century as, as quote high function as a, or in, in, in Benedict's you know, case in particular as a high functioning sociopath. <laughs> and I thought that was tremendously interesting. So, you know, I was actually kind of looking forward to Holmes and Watson when I saw the trailer, uh, because I thought it would be fun to sort of reinvent him as a buffoon. You know, what if, you know, he had all of these sorts of, you know, most observant person ever qualities, but he was just kind of an idiot and he gets it all wrong in the end, despite having all the premises be there and be accurate, the conclusion is somehow wrong and he has to fix it. You know, that is something that I didn't think had been done before. And I I was really looking forward to, you know, obviously, you know, as you and I are, you know, having been a fan of 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 the Will Ferrell, John C. Riley work, you know, liking it in Talladega Nights, probably loving it in Step Brothers. You know, I was I was I was pretty much, you know, as excited as I could be getting ready for this movie to come out. And, you know, to tell you the truth, I, I'm not sure that it deserves all of the flack it's been getting from from the critics. Um, you know, I think one thing that was sort of frustrating is. You know, it wasn't a great Will Ferrell, John C. Riley movie, but that's just because our standards are so darn high for them. You know, okay. we've seen them do extraordinarily better with a better screenplay that was just better performed and better executed than I think Sherlock, than I think Holmes and Watson was. And so that was that was a bit disappointing. Um, I would have been ready, you know, given the treatment to say that, you know, to say that it was canonical. To say that you know the reinvention didn't go so far as to do away with, with what we needed it to be in order for it to be a good piece of Sherlock Holmes content. But I think what ruined it for me, if I'm being totally honest, is that, you know, not once, you know, not, not Robert Downey Jr., not Benedict Cumberbatch, you know, not any of our you know beloved older stars of yesteryear who have who have done the Deerstalker cap, you know, have we ever seen. I mean, look, we've seen the ego a lot, right? You read about it, you know, you see it in the books, you see it in the novels, but it's almost like the Sherlock Holmes character transcends that ego because he's not doing it for the public adulation, right? He's doing it because it's challenging and it's sophisticated and it's about the greater good. And that's what drives, you know, his ego, right? That's the essence of the character. But just to watch the Will Ferrell character just bask in that spotlight and want to be on the front page of that newspaper and want to show off just kind of broke the spell for me just because Uh I think, I think that's just so far removed from, from what we expect, you know, from the character. And then, you know, you're willing to let some things go, you know, never in any of the books is the deerstalker cap ever mentioned. That was, that was added by an illustrator years later. Um, you know, never, never in the original content does he ever say elementary, my dear Watson, Really, yeah, but we never once. What? Um, wow. Yeah, uh, that actually came out in a in a television show called The Return of Sherlock Holmes in the early 20th century. It was the first time you ever heard that phrase. Um, and and both of those are are in this Holmes and Watson movie. Uh, you know, as as the the impetus behind some some pretty cheap jokes that that were pretty funny and drew some laughs. And um, I just I th- I thought that the the character development was a little bit far from being a true Sherlock Holmes movie. They might have taken it a little too far. But I still, you know, I still enjoyed the movie and I don't think that it it deserves, you know, quite the panning it's been getting. Well, I do find that to be a tendency sometimes in Hollywood where 
you know, once once there's sort of blood in the water and it's like, oh, now it's trendy to hate this movie, like everybody just sort of dumps on it. And yeah. you know, something that maybe should have been like a 35 in Rotten Tomatoes becomes an eight. You know, I, 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 I would say, you know, yeah, I think you're, you're kind of seeing that, you know, piled on, you know, in, in the marketplace as you kind of keep an eye on what the critics are saying. And as a result, what the social media says, you know, I, I, I will I'll, I'll throw them a bone in this way, you know. I've never once seen in a movie or a television show, you know, the, uh, well, in a movie or a television show that wasn't specifically about this idea. Um, you know, there is a, a little vignette in the beginning of this movie about what it must have been like for Sherlock Holmes to be a child. And I thought that was kind of fun to see, you know, on the silver screen and, and you know, treated as a comedy. I thought that was interesting. Um, and there's, you know, there, there is, there is, you know, an homage here and there to the original character. You know, you get, you get a throwdown in a very important moment of, you know, whenever you eliminate the impossible, uh, whatever remains, however improbable must be true. Right. And so, you know, if you're, if you're a Sherlock Holmes person, you know, whenever you hear that, you immediately get excited about what's going to happen next. And there was that payoff in this film too. And so, you know, if you're a person who who likes, you know, Will Ferrell and John C. Riley, or you know, has even a passing interest in Sherlock Holmes, I think uh, I think it's an interesting enough treatment that I would go and check it out. I think my expectations were very, very high. Um, I think I had some good reasons to be a little disappointed with it, but still worth watching. I think. Wow, you are a tremendous attorney, and you have a lot of legal knowledge. I feel like even that is dwarfed by your appreciation and love for Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> like. <laughs> Like if if you could find a way to make six figures, you know, appreciating <laughs> Sherlock Holmes, I feel like that would be your career choice. Um, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I will, I, you know, I will just, you know, I, I will say this, you know, much like, uh, much like my ability to talk to people, you know, I wouldn't say even my ability, but just my affinity, my interest in talking to people about guitars. You know, I would say to to both the ladies and the gentlemen out there, you know, if you happen to be you know, in a relationship, and it doesn't even have to be a romantic relationship, it could even be a friendship, you know, with somebody who's not as into Sherlock Holmes as you are. Nothing that I just went over should be considered like first date conversation. It's just not a good idea. <laughs> well, well, I'm glad that's where that our first date on this show was, uh, you know, an extensive Sherlock Holmes discussion. And I imagine yeah. the, a lot of the indie artists are pissed right now because in the intro, I talked about how you knew a lot about guitars and Sherlock Holmes. And I'm sure all the listeners thought, oh, good. He's going to ask him some guitar questions because we're musicians and that's what we care about. But nope, 15 minutes on Sherlock Holmes. Well, you know, if that's if that's all we have time for, it is your show, and I want to be respectful of that. But you know, anybody who is interested in that discussion, I mean, you did hand out my contact information. You know, feel free to tweet me, and you know, I'll I'll talk to you about guitars all the live long day. Well, we're gonna have you on again soon, Josh, and we're gonna make sure that we have a nice guitar discussion so that people can benefit from your expertise there. But uh, how about a music business question before we let you go uh, this week? Sure. Do you have any last tips to share with the indie artist listeners? out there to help them move their careers forward I, I love this question I know I know that you ask every single one of your guests this question and it's it's one of the really valuable things that I think you do you know for indie artists and I'll you know and I'll compliment you on that I mean you know in terms of this podcast and the, the wonderful book that you've written you know you really do have the indie artist and, and their best interest at heart all the time and you see it in your you see it in your practice and you see it in the way that you represent clients and the way that you advocate for them and it's been my privilege to work alongside you on a lot of these issues and, and to see it firsthand and so you know I hope all of your li- I'm sure all of your listeners know and understand that at this point but I think it's worth repeating uh 
in terms of my advice, I would, I would say really it's, it's twofold, you know, number one, be constantly creating, you know, always think about, you know, your, your product, your content, what you're putting out there and try to give your fans as much as you possibly can as frequently as you can, because you never know what exactly is going to resonate and what exactly is going to become, you know, that soundtrack to somebody's life. Who's just going to follow you and stay with you and patronize you as much as they can. And so that I think is, is number one, first and foremost. But the second thing I would, I would advise them to do is never stop learning and never stop communicating. If you haven't read Ryan's book, definitely do it and then read as many more as you can after that. Because there's never enough that you could possibly learn about how to march your career forward. And in terms of communication, you know, remain in touch with, with your support system, with your stable of people who are behind you, and with your fans, of course. But not just about you, not just about your content. You know, patronize your friends, patronize your colleagues, celebrate them, celebrate them publicly, and just make sure that you're always part of that conversation on the great independent content that we all have access to now because of the tools at our fingertips. We've never been in a situation or in a market like the one we're in right now. And the thing that I want to be listening to is the next thing all the time. And so that's a great place to be. And it gives, it gives us a window that we haven't had before to really enjoy some really great content. And, you know, for people like you and me, Ryan, it's just a really fun opportunity to constantly be involved in that process. No question. And if you want to strike up a conversation with Josh, you can follow him on Twitter at Josh Morales ESQ and check out his website, www.parkerpo.com. Josh, it has been a pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us this week. No, thank you so much as always for, uh, for having me, Ryan. And, uh, and I look forward to the, uh, to the next nerdy conversation we have whenever that is. <laughs> we will see you all next week on the Break the Business podcast.